Southern Skies. Online Media. Playing Crazy Down Under's coverage of the 2013 Australian International Air Show is proudly sponsored by Jetride Australia, Oz Runways, Red Baron Adventures and Sennheiser. In conjunction with Avplan, a classic flight bag, Eco 2000 and World Flight Planner. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 103, our Avalon 2013 Day 3 coverage. I'm Steve Fisher, and joining me is Grant McHeron. Grant, uh, a very windy day at Avalon for uh, Day 3, but at least it wasn't raining. Well, not much anyway. Well, there was some rain, but uh, fortunately we were inside an aircraft at the time. But uh, yeah, a bit of wind, a little bit of rain, and uh, a whole lot of activity on our part. Yeah, very military-focused for uh, for you and I today. We've been around talking to the Super Hornet crews, and uh, there'll be a couple of interviews in this episode about that. We've also been uh, in and out of the uh, C-17 Globemaster today. We've been all over that aircraft today. And uh, boy, I tell you what, Grant, I'm going to have to line that one up as my next one on the wish list for a uh, media ride with the RAF, I think. What a fantastic machine. Well, uh, given that uh, Eamon Hamilton has confirmed that he's counting on us, I uh, think we'd uh, have to have a chat with him about that one. That's very cryptic, mate. We'll have to make sure our listeners have watched the uh, blooper reel on today's video. That's right, mate. Today's uh, summary video, absolute fantastic bit of work by Stephen Pam, uh, especially that blooper reel right at the end. That was great. Now we've got both Ben's with us tonight and we've got Bez as well. Bez, you've been up in the tower today at Avalon Tower. I have. What a cute little tower they've got there. I'm sure they wouldn't want to hear that. <laughs> it's old school, man. They've got rotary dial phones and everything in there and just big push buttons with lights on them like it's a 1960s uh, corporate uh, telephone switchboard. Now, now for all our very younger listeners, a, a rotary telephone, they won't even know what you're talking about, Baz. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, if, if you don't know what it is, it's like that scroll wheel on your iPod, but with numbers on them. Oh, <laughs> and really it doesn't go. Oh, and it goes, the jog wheel, the jog dial thing goes round and round and round, huh? That's the one. But it was good to be there. Good to see what they're doing of course uh Evelyn being class d it's uh basically look out the window and uh keep track of everything that way. They've got a little radar screen sitting in the corner, but nothing like uh, what Ben probably has in, uh, at centre. No, no, my uh, radar screen's a little bit bigger, and uh, unlike the boys in the tower, I can actually use it to keep aeroplanes apart. They're only allowed to use it to actually work out where everybody is. They're not allowed to use it to separate. That would be cheating for them. But the view of the uh, airshow uh, X going on from the tower is uh, superb. It's, uh, it's a good place to watch it. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Baz, because it's a fair way back off the field, the tower there, so it's, uh, I'm surprised you can get such a good view. Yeah, but it's unobstructed and they've got some really, really high quality binoculars there as well and they've got dozens of them. Uh, so you were grabbing a pair and uh, just watching the show, huh? Yeah, that's the one. Now, uh, ATC Ben, you and Ben Jones have uh, been wandering around uh, doing a bit of GA work today and uh, you know, trying your hand at a bit of filming as well. Yeah, trying to get uh, my uh, mug on the uh, on the camera and uh, unfortunately uh, now somebody's been looking at my mug editing it, thankfully not me. And uh, yeah, GA is, is the right terminology because uh, we went and talked to uh, Gips Aero and uh, all about the new GA-10, the uh, turbine-powered aircraft that's coming out. And uh, we got to talk to one of the development pilots today and uh, about the program and how they're progressing over there with that program. We've also been in the Gulfstream G650. I tell you what, Grant, um, you know, I'm thinking about getting back into uh, flying Cessna 
listeners again. I think I might just aim a little higher and go for that. <laughs> Mate, what a sensational machine. Yeah, it was pretty nice. Um, naturally, as you might expect, a little bit more compact than the uh, Airbus corporate jet we were in yesterday. But uh, yeah, pretty uh, nice, well-decked out uh, cabin and uh, very, very nice at the pointy end in the cockpit. I spent the time there while you were in the cabin and uh, I was very impressed with it, especially the bit where it uh, can easily do Mach 0.9 uh, and it is currently the fastest civilian aircraft in the world. It's beaten out the Citation 10. I don't know what was more impressive in that aircraft, actually looking into the cockpit and looking at all the high-tech uh, technology in there or uh, getting down the back in those wonderful leather seats and the, the galley there had the coffee brewing and, wow, I, I need one of those. Well, mate, having seen the daily summary, I had no idea what was going on in the back there, but looks like you were making the most of it in there, having a good stretch out and relax. My, you can recline right back on those seats. They reckon they can hold 13 people in there and uh, I'm sure it would do that in, in comfort and style but uh, I tell you what if you only had two or three of you in there that would be a very pleasant trip and uh, they were saying that they set the cabin altitude down to 3,000 feet so uh, you you know the, the idea is there obviously that you would uh, arrive more refreshed well yeah I yeah. think you could stock that bar up and be very refreshed <laughs> here's the important question though Steve did you put a deposit down on the PCDU jet. <laughs> no, I made the I made the mistake of asking how much it was and uh, you know they said well if you if you have to ask you've got no place here so well, I they believe- kicked me out. I, I believe that the um, answer to your question, the, if you phrase the question correctly, is what is the $64 million question? Yeah, you might be exactly right. Yeah, uh, I, I did actually put a deposit down on a G650. They had some nice models there for about 100 bucks. I put a deposit down. I hope to pay for it later. You know? <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. And uh, to cap that off, uh, we also talked to the the RAF Wedgetail crew. Now, we did that back in 2011 as well. Obviously, a different crew this time. A couple of years of uh, extra development on the aircraft. It's now achieved IOC so we talked to them about that and uh, we also talked to them about their outstanding performance recently at Exercise Cope North out there near Guam. That's right mate, 100% success rate on all their missions and there were more than two or three missions, they they were worked reasonably well. And also we've got an interview here with uh, Charles Cheeseman from Eco2000, uh, they've come on board and uh, helped sponsor us here for our Avalon 2013 series and they make some uh, fantastic cleaning products and it's all aimed at aviation, all the products that they make. Yeah and that's the uh, first part of two I actually spoke to Charles about all their products, so we've split that uh, chat into two parts. First part's coming up today, second part will come in a later episode. Fantastic. Well, uh, let's get into it. Sounds good. Okay, well, uh, one of the stars of uh, Avalon 2013, of course, has been the uh, the Super Hornet, the RAF Super Hornet, and uh, we're here with uh, Flight Lieutenant uh, Tony O'Neill and Flight Lieutenant Matthew Stade. Gentlemen, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, yeah no problem. Nice to meet you. Now, you guys have been uh, doing the demonstration, so we should uh, talk about the demo first. Uh, very loud, as always. Always impressive for the Hornets. Always impressive not only to see, but to hear from the ground. Perhaps tell us about some of the routine and how you guys were selected for it. Yeah, sure. Uh, we're doing the uh, solo display. Uh, we've got a high, a medium and a low show, depending on the, the cloud base. Our high show goes up to about 20,000 feet, uh, ends with a vertical departure, and uh, the medium and low show is progressively lower, down to about 2,500 feet and 1,500 feet for the low show. Involves a mix of barrel rolls, vertical and max performance turns, high speed, nice and fast and loud, and a slow pass as well. So a bit of everything. Also loud. Yeah. <laughs> Now, obviously, the weather has been against us here at Avalon uh, this year, so the low show is, the, is obviously uh, what's uh, going on uh, this week. Yeah, we did the... Uh, in fact, we arrived on the uh, Sunday and we did the high show on the Monday. We did the low show on Tuesday and today probably the medium show, so mixing it up a bit. Now, uh, how are you guys selected to perform in the demonstration? 
Oh, well, uh, I guess the squadron itself, or the two squadrons, sort of look at the guys and the experience that are in the squadron there and try and get some relatively senior guys to do it. There's a few guys around in the squadron, but really, Tones, you know, here is uh, one of the best uh, instructors we've got at, at Six Squadron. So he's uh, a natural choice. And myself, I think, uh, I, I think I'm think i a bit lucky, really. But, but uh, no, just sort of senior experience in the squadron and guys with a fair bit of hours on the jet. Now, of course, we're always used to seeing Hornets here at Avalon, but obviously the legacy Hornets, single-seat aircraft. You guys are up there, and it's interesting to me that they also take the weapons systems officer in the back for the demonstration ride. Yeah, well, uh, we fly around as a two crew in whatever we do for the most part. Obviously, there's no uh, weapons or systems as far as attack systems being used in the air show. We're used to flying around as a crew, working together, backing each other up. Tone's is doing most of the work in the front. I'm, uh, I'm there to just help support him and make sure the jet's behaving itself, really. Uh, and then when I get the chance, have a bit of uh, enjoyment of, of the flight occasionally when there's a few seconds uh, spare. <laughs> And so how is it in the back there? I mean, you know, Tones is throwing it around the sky and the aircraft's going all over the place and you're just pretty much hanging on and going, oh boy. Yeah, well, uh, there's a fair bit of prep involved, actually. You know, there's very uh, strict number of gates and heights and entry speeds to the manoeuvres, and it's quite precise. There's not much room for error. So uh, although it may appear to a lot of people I'm not doing anything in the back, you know, Tones is working very hard in the front to make that jet look really good. You know, a little bit of help occasionally, and uh, maybe not actually flying the jet, of course, but just support and uh, checking that the jet, as I said, is behaving itself. It's not doing nothing, that's that's for sure, but uh, you do get to enjoy it, that's for sure. You know, the high-speed pass, you get a few seconds to just look out, look at the massive crowd and, uh, and enjoy it. That's for sure. Anthony, uh, you're a, uh, originally a, a legacy Hornet pilot, so you've converted over here to the Super Hornet. Can you tell us a bit about that conversion process and how was it? And I guess uh, we all want to know what's the difference in performance. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was on the Classic for about uh, five years, and the guys prior to me went to the uh, States for a six-month conversion. I did mine in Australia, so I was one of the first guys to do the conversion in Australia. It was about three months long, and in terms of differences between the Super and the Classic, initially inside the jet, it's very similar. It's actually, in terms of flying, it's uh, it feels the same. The displays are almost identical, but it's a great jet. Like uh, you know, the radar and a few few modern things in the jet make it uh, awesome to fly. It really is. And you guys have been up recently, I know from some of the reports, uh, training here in Australia with the US Navy. Has it been a, a very helpful process, obviously, for you? Oh, it has. It's great to see how they operate. You know, a few small differences, but they do things slightly different, different but uh, it's good to see that different uh, procedures and operations. And they, they actually brought their uh, growlers out, which is the, uh, the electronic attack version of the uh, Super Hornet. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Yep. So uh, did they uh, give you a bit of a reciprocal and put you on a carrier and uh, put you in the back and give you a trap? Uh, unfortunately not, not yet. <laughs> Is that an ambition for you guys? I mean, I, I imagine that would be quite something to be shot off the deck of a carrier. It would be. Uh, in fact, we've got one of the guys here today who's just come back from the US Navy Exchange and he got to do a uh, carrier qual, so got to take off and land on a carrier. And, uh, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> now, Matthew, you were originally on the, uh, the F-111 as a weapons systems officer there. Can you tell us, um, obviously, the technology is a big quantum leap. Has the role changed much for you in, in terms of what you were doing on the F-111 to what you're doing now? It has, it definitely has. The, the technology jump, you know, we always compare the uh, F-111 to the Super Hornet as, as far as an old brick phone to the iPhone 4 kind of thing. And it, it just changes the job quite quite a lot. One of the biggest things, obviously, finding, you know, air to ground was, it was my game on the F-111 and very... Uh, very good at that and you know using an old system to do it this jet just makes it so much easier you know the boys say around the squadron that it would almost be able to find any target in any environment just because the systems are so much better one thing which is very new on this jet um you know for future acos and guys who are coming across even now the air to air game which we'd never really played in you know tones had in the classic hornet but that's a very new uh part of the job for me something which is actually amazing and excellent to do you know a bit of dog fighting with two jets you know in close proximity fighting each other is, is awesome so <clears throat> the job has uh, changed a little 
little bit as far as yeah, sitting front to back as opposed to side by side has changed a little bit as well. So it's no longer, you know, pointing at something, as far as pointing at something and getting a uh, pilot to do something, you need to use your voice quite a lot. It's, uh, you know, it, uh, it's a leap and bound ahead in technology and the job has, has adapted, but it's still ultimately the same sort of teamwork to get the job done, which is, uh, which is still great. You can't quite reach over and smack the other guy and say, hey, look at this. It's uh, you know, getting attention's a little different. Yeah, that's right. Not unless you've got a pole in the back and just uh, <laughs> tap him on top of the helmet or something, but uh, for the most part, no. If he does, I'll just pull 7.5G and that'll quieten him down for a few minutes. You obviously catch that on video. I've seen so many good videos on YouTube where people have been taken up and had that done to them. So it's obviously changed the game. This is a very electronic aircraft. I guess uh, with the sort of technology and the roles that you're performing in the F-111, getting down there and in the weeds, this aircraft, I guess, allows you not only to do that if you wanted to, but get up and, and do more of the electronic fight as opposed to going to... The, you know, uh, hardware, I guess. Yeah, well, I guess the systems really are optimised to remain high now. You know, the radar, the FLIR, um, all electronic warfare protection stuff, it's, it's optimised to stay high. The, the low-level game has sort of gone the way of the Dodo, I guess. Um, the F-111 was definitely outdated. You know, still had uh, a lot of payload and range, but that's definitely uh, not the tactic to be using nowadays. You know, the electronic warfare is definitely the game to be in, and this jet does it excellently. And things have shifted also. Uh, it's You're more networked now. You've you're got the data links with all the other aircraft. You've got the introduction of the Growler. I imagine you guys can't talk too much about that one, but that does change the game in terms of uh, spoofing the enemy, not just uh, jamming them, but actually confusing them. How, how do you find that that whole... Is, is it a major headspace change to the way you think about how you, you go into combat? Yeah, it's massive. When, when I first started on the Classic, we had the uh, APG-65 and uh, the AIM-7, and uh, there was no Link-16, which is basically the network that we use. So I was listening to a lot of, lot of radio com, which obviously can be jammed, and really trying to build that picture in your head, which which took years, takes a long time to get that SA or situational awareness. Whereas these days we've got uh, the Link-16, so we can look at a uh, map in the cockpit and it can display where the friendly, uh, where the enemy are. Uh, that can get linked through the wedge tail. And we've also got the joint uh, helmet-mounted sight, which uh, is fantastic, so it's, it's all there in the cockpit pretty heavy on your head I would imagine when you're pulling those seven and a half G's. It is yeah the neck gets a little bit sore but you get used to it after a while. Yeah. Now we, we have a lot of young people that listen to our program and a lot of uh, aspiring pilots and, uh, and people that have got their eyes on becoming aircrew in the Air Force. Could you tell us what your path was to get to where you are now? Yeah sure uh, I was direct entry so I uh, applied had a few jobs uh, after school went through officer training school in Melbourne and I was lucky enough to go through the CT4, the PC9, then onto the Hawk, so straight through onto the jet. Uh, and then after uh, about a year on the Hawk, I posted to the 77 Squadron. And from there, three years at an operational frontline squadron and then the uh, last few years instructing. All right, you, Matthew, getting obviously air crew. Everybody thinks pilots, but uh, sometimes you guys get left out of the limelight, but it's obviously a, a very, very important role. So how did you get into your role within the within the Air Force? Yeah, well, uh, I went through the Defence Force Academy, did uh, a bachelor degree there, and then actually I've had a pretty uh, pretty good run since then. So I actually did my navigator course in Canada. So I spent a year in Canada, which was absolutely great. Um, of course, that's uh, all done at sale now uh, for all the uh, navigator or ACO students. Um, <clears throat> from there, uh, onto the F-111 and did three years on the F-111. Uh, and then was lucky enough to be selected to uh, go to uh, the Super Hornet and uh, happened to actually do my training with the US Navy for six months uh, in California before coming back uh, as one of the first sort of crews back to the Super Hornet as well. So had a pretty good run. But, you know, there's plenty of potential out there for anyone looking to join to do similar sort of things in the future, especially with things like JSF coming online, you know, and uh, the, eight, the 18G Growler coming online as well. So 
it's uh, one of those jobs where everyone does want to go become a pilot, but this job is certainly a great career and I'm um, having a great time. Yep, and very important for our younger listeners to make sure they study their maths and their sciences and I guess their physics. Yeah, definitely. I learned that the hard way. I didn't do too well in high school, so I had to go and redo maths. Uh, but yeah, I think it just shows uh, just hard work and attitude, I think, really is the key. Yep. Perseverance yep. pays off. Exactly. Well, uh, guys, it was really a pleasure to talk to you and uh, a really pleasure to watch you up in the skies. And we'll see you in the skies here over Avalon for the next few days. Yeah, our pleasure. Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Well, folks, I've sat in a lot of cockpits and here I am in the left seat of the brand new Gulfstream G650. I got to say, this is a very impressive piece of equipment. And who better to take us through it than Mark Jarrett. Mark, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you very much. Now, what's your role with Gulfstream? I'm an international sales and demonstration captain. So that basically means I take our jets pretty much all over the world, show them to potential customers, I deliver new aircraft, and I also work shows like the one here at Avalon. Sounds like a pretty good gig. Yeah, it beats working for a living, that's for sure. <laughs> so how long have you been flying, mate? All told, for a living, uh, about 20 years. And how, what got you into flying? It's all I ever wanted to do. Ever since I was a little kid, I just always liked airplanes. Did you go straight into, like, work your way to executive jets, or did you have an airline background? Pretty much everything you can do in airplanes other than military. I just started taking lessons in high school and then went to college for it. Did freight, charter, skydivers. I did do corporate aviation, then I went to the airlines for a while and then started working for Gulfstream. And how long have you been with Gulfstream now? Almost 11 years. Wow, that's great. So let's talk about the G650. This is the cutting edge. It's the latest stuff. Yeah, it's it's our flagship. You know, it's farther, faster, higher, bigger. Yep. How long has it been on the market now? It depends on how you define on the market. You know, we announced it several years ago. And we started delivering aircraft uh, several months ago. So this one's uh, got that definite new aircraft smell. Yeah, yeah, it's a good smell, isn't it? <laughs> it's lovely. So what, what's the, the range? Let's talk about range and performance. Well, uh, when they set out um, to design the 650, the initial design criteria was they wanted to get 7,000 nautical miles at Mach 0.85, and uh, they wanted to get 5,000 nautical miles at uh, Mach 90. And uh, as it turned out, we've actually uh, been able to get almost 6,000 nautical miles at the 90 speed. So the aircraft is, is outperforming uh, the initial targets. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's always better to, to under-promise and over-deliver. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I guess that traveling at those speeds, it's good for the guys in the back to get from point to point very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the whole purpose of a corporate jet is it's a time machine. Mm -hmm. And so on a, on a max range flight on the 650, you're really saving about an hour over, you know, similar time aircraft and we have a lower cabin altitude as well so the amount of time you spend at altitude you're more refreshed when you get there you know you have a lot more oxygen very important for the uh the people who want to hit the ground running yeah it really is you know i didn't really realize it before i came to gulfstream i had never done really long legs and it really becomes all about comfort at altitude you know to try to minimize your fatigue as a pilot how's she handle it's actually a really really nice flying airplane exponentially the nicest airplane i've ever flown very responsive and so on. Yeah, the fly-by-wire system is fantastic. They really got it right, and it lands just so easy. You know, I always say the 450 lands well, the 550 lands great, and the 650 is even better. It's it's impossible to get a bad landing in this airplane. Oh, fantastic. I'd love it. 
it's a two-pilot operation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any aircraft of this type is uh, certified with two pilots. It's got the fly-by-wire. What other systems does it have that's not quite the usual that you might expect if you're used to flying the smaller end? Well, the, the fly-by-wire is definitely a, a new and advanced system for Gulfstream. The enhanced vision system, the forward-looking infrared camera that you can see on this small display here that's also projected on the uh, heads-up display. I can give you a bigger picture of it here. That's a forward-looking infrared camera that allows us to see through fog and a certain amount of weather. And so it allows us to see the runway lights and approach lights before you would with the naked eye. So in addition to it uh, just being good for situational awareness and an enhanced safety feature, it actually allows us to get in to airports on days where the weather's not very good when maybe we wouldn't be able to get in without it. So as they say, synthetic vision sort of tells you roughly where you are. Enhanced vision shows you the deer on the runway. Well, yeah, the, the synthetic vision doesn't sort of tell you. It tells you exactly where you are, but like you said, it doesn't show you the deer on the runway. The synthetic vision, which I have on DU number one there, is basically a database-driven system that shows you the outside world the same way a flight simulator would. So if you can fly a flight simulator, you can fly this airplane, do a visual approach and landing right on the center line, having never seen outside the aircraft. Amazing. And it, it works phenomenally. And then, like you said, the enhanced vision system allows us to physically see what's going on, even though we right. might not be able to see it with the naked eye. Yeah, some truck wanders onto the runway, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Another really nice feature of the synthetic vision is the little magenta aircraft symbol you see in the center there. That's what's called a flight path vector. And that shows you where the mass of the aircraft is physically going to be. And so if you are, let's say, taking off out of Aspen at night or mountainous terrain at night, and you lose an engine or you're having really bad weather and you need to avoid terrain, you can put that blue, or I'm sorry, that magenta aircraft symbol in the blue sky and that's where the airplane's gonna go. Right. And so it just may, it takes all the guesswork out and it just, it's a really, really nice system. Also, you can put that flight path vector on the beginning of the runway. So you put that on the numbers and that's where the airplane's gonna hit the runway. Yeah, I've seen that one in action before and thought, oh, this would make my landing so much better if I knew exactly where it was going. Yeah, it really is. They've, they've taken all the work out of flying and there wasn't that much before. <laughs> now, of course, you mentioned just before, we've got the heads-up display here, the hood, and it's quite a large piece of reflective glass here. What's driving it? Where's the, is the display just here above my head? Yeah, above your head there's a projector and that's called the combiner screen. That's, that's where the projection you know, is displayed. And it, uh, you know, obviously allows you to look through the glass and see the runway. Um, a lot of times they'll call it burning through as, as the runway burns through the clouds and you can see the runway. It's exactly where it is on the HUD. Yeah. So there's no, there's no delay in going between your heads down displays and looking up trying to see the runway and going back. It just yeah. comes right through the HUD. Which is where in a lot of two crew operations, one's flying instruments, one's looking out the window. Exactly. And that now exactly. gives you the extra benefit. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that really came from you know fighter pilot technology where they needed to be looking outside the aircraft at enemy targets. Indeed. Now the rest of the systems you've got here, two per pilot, two very large multifunction screens. I take it you can put whatever you want on either screen? Yeah, they're very customizable for lack of a better word. The left seat pilot has control of these three screens. I would have control as a right seat pilot of these three screens. So we basically share the two center screens and you each have your own outboard screen that only you control. And I know you've got a very, very impressive side stick here for uh, controlling all this gear. Yeah, this is our CCD or cursor control device. It's essentially just an interface between the pilot and the EFIS. I sort of equate it to a computer mouse. If you look at the joystick on top here, that's sort of like moving your mouse across the desk. And then there's a trigger in front, which would be left clicking your mouse essentially. And then we have a scroll wheel that's just like the scroll wheel on a mouse. We can use it to scroll through if, you know, if I pull up a menu here and then I can 
move the joystick to run through and then if I pull up different lists, I can use the wheel to scroll through the lists. But you can see we have the paperless cockpit with the jet charts, and it's got the aircraft current position displayed, which is great for, you know, here I have an ILS up, so you can watch the aircraft fly over the, the final approach course. The situational awareness is just phenomenal. And the thing that, that I find most helpful is the airport charts. You know, here at Avalon, we have one long runway, so it's pretty hard to get lost. Even I can find my way around Avalon. But, you know, you go to Frankfurt or some large international airport with a language barrier, and they give you a very complicated taxi instruction, and you can just follow it right on the picture. Yeah, that's, that's always a problem I had when I was doing my fixed wing training. You'd land at a complicated airport, and uh, if you hadn't done your pre-training of, of you know, your preparation, looking at your chart of the runway diagrams and the taxiways, you'd be sitting there scratching your head because it's really not that easy to figure things out from looking at the signs and everything. Yeah, it, it just takes all the guesswork yeah. out of it. It overcomes language barriers. And this airplane is, you know, mostly an international aircraft. You know, you, it's it's designed from the ground up to be flown in other people's airspace and other people's countries. Yep. Now, I noticed one thing with your um, side controller for all the, the virtual mouse, so to speak. You're holding onto it with your arm rested, so you could use that quite easily in turbulence. Yeah, it's it's. they really put a lot of thought into it ergonomically. Um, our, we have a, a large human factors department, and I actually do some testing for them because I'm six foot four. I'm sort of the tall, goofy end of the spectrum. And, you know, lots and lots of time got invested in that cursor control device where they make, you know, many different prototypes, and we test them, and then they refine them, and we test them again. And like you said, you know, it's, it's rock solid. It's built into the sidewall of the aircraft. You've got a really good hold on it. There's some other products out there, you know, with sort of trackballs and things that are just not as solid and easy to use in turbulence, like you said. Yeah, I've been in a couple of bumps with friends in their aircraft, and we're trying to use the track device and, and enter things, and it's quite challenging at times. So I was really impressed by that whole good ergonomics. On yeah, the, the CCD is very intuitive. Yeah. It's very easy to use. And it's just a, a very intuitive way to inter, interface with the EFIS. And it's, um, but we do also, we are able to interface with the EFIS through other means, just through the control panels on the, on the aircraft panel. Now we've got the standard yoke input device for uh, the flight, the pedals and so on. The uh, throttles, are they uh, like in an Airbus where you have detente, or are they more like in a, a detente rather? Or are they more like in a Boeing where you've got fine control? Yeah, they're, they're more of a traditional auto throttle. They move. You don't just set a detent. I mean, you know, there's pros and cons to every design. You know, I prefer this type of auto throttle. I like to see them move and where they are as opposed to just having them in a detent and having to look for a gauge to see what they're doing. It gives you another form of feedback that you can subconsciously process while looking out and doing other things. And it's tactile. Yeah. You know, a, a big thing about cockpit design is the tactile feel of everything. You know, if you notice, the, the knobs are different actual shapes and feels. And because a lot of the way you fly an aircraft is through feel, not through looking at it. So we have the throttles here. They're going through the auto throttle system. They're moving about. What are the throttles connected to through the system in the back? What kind of engines have we got? Well, it's, it's a full authority uh, digital auto throttle system. Um, it's basically throttle by wire. Um, they're connected to uh, Rolls-Royce uh, BR725 engines, which is basically a derivative of the uh, BR710 engine that uh, you know has a proven history on the 550 and other aircraft. Um, it's uh, 16,900 pounds of thrust, um, which is you know that's a lot of engine for this aircraft. Yeah, definitely a lot of grunt. Yeah, absolutely. How do you find your takeoff rolls with a good load on of um, executives and so on? Uh, really, the, the, the load on this airplane is gas. You know, we, we won't feel much difference depending on how we load the inside of the airplane, but you'll feel a difference depending on your fuel load. 
and depending on how long your leg is, it really you know will determine obviously how heavy the aircraft is going to be. But even at max gross weight, I mean the performance is still phenomenal. And if it is a shorter flight and you're you know don't have a, a heavy load on gas, it's a rocket. Climbs like a homesick angel, as they say. Exactly. Now it's a two-pilot crew, but on a, I imagine on a really long sector and long haul with uh, the executives going intercontinental and so on, you probably have three crew? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, each operator, if they're not a charter company, really sets their own policy. Gulfstream's policy is very conservative and we're more restrictive than, than Part 135 operators. But yeah, for long haul flights, uh, we would carry a, a third crew member and we just rotate through the crew rest area. And we have a quite a large crew rest area just behind the cockpit with a lay flat bed and a TV monitor and all the comforts of home. Nice. Now, you've, you've talked earlier about it ranges at 0.85, ranges at 0.9 mark. Yeah. There's a certain other aircraft out there from the other guys uh, that has the uh, reputation of being uh, the fastest uh, civilian uh, business jet and so on. How does this stack up against that? Uh, this airplane's faster. Uh, we are currently the fastest civilian aircraft in the world. If you want to go faster than a G650, you're going to have to fly a fighter jet. Oh. I think I could fall in love with this aircraft all over again. Yeah, it's, it really has been a pleasure. Um, you know, I've, I've moved up through the lineage, and this is by far our you know, biggest, fastest, farthest aircraft. Any particular challenges that that associates? Uh, you know, the fly-by-wire system was new for me, um, so I don't know if I would call it as a, a challenge so much as an opportunity. It was an opportunity to learn a completely you know, different architecture, a different way to fly an airplane. Um, but, you know, there's a reason that the industry's going that way. Okay. Well, mate, thank you very much for your time. This has been absolutely fantastic. I I'm blown away by this cockpit. And this oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for coming by. Okay. Thanks, mate. All right. Take care. Charles Chesman from Eco2000. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks. Good to be here. Excellent. Mate, you've got a couple of very interesting products here at the show. You've got the uh, ZI400, I believe it's a colloidal aircraft cleaner. Colloidal, yes. Yeah. That's correct. And the Zoc27 uh, turbine engine cleaner. That's correct, yes. Okay, now you're primarily cleaning-based people. Is that correct, your products? Yes. Eco2000 fills a very niche market area. We only supply cleaning products to aerospace. We don't make general cleaners. We don't make car cleaners, although a lot of people do use our aircraft cleaner on their cars, but we do not manufacture any products outside of aerospace. And with the name Eco2000, I'm guessing it's all environmentally friendly products that you're creating? Again, yes. Yes, that's correct. Very environmentally friendly. Big green tick on all our products. They're also low toxicity, so they're not hazardous for people to use, which is very important in this day and age with OHS and all the other requirements. So, how did Eco 2000 come about? Eco 2000 was started in 1989. There was a perceived need for specialised aircraft cleaners. At that time, there was really nothing in Australia available, so the company was created and then products were discovered to fill the, the market and the ZI400 is made under licence to an American company. We manufacture it right here in Melbourne and it's distributed from our warehousing here in Melbourne. As you mentioned earlier, it's a colloidal cleaner, so it's very different chemistry and technology to a normal surfactant-based detergent. So you mentioned colloidal, now it's surfactant. I take it surfactant is sudsing? Surfactant is the nice flash word for bubbles. <laughs> so special bubbles. So yeah, so that's where you get those foaming cleansers and things like that and the, they, they bubble up and like in the washing machine and so on. Yeah, that's a, the surfactant doing okay. that. 
how does a colloidal system work? The word colloid is a, is a word used in, you'll find that word in a, a chemistry dictionary. It describes a state of matter. So the colloidal state is a very, we're talking super small. Basically you get the ionic state, which is a, a free ion or an atom floating around. And just above that, you then have the colloidal state. And then above that, you go into suspended solids and dissolved solids and, and, and all that. So we're talking very, very fine, small states of matter. Milk and blood are both colloidal. So you think of it like fog. You've got bits of particles of water floating around in the air. Well, that represents the the colloid state. So typically the particles in in the ZI-400 are somewhere between 10 and 50 angstroms in diameter. Very, very tiny. Yeah, that's a thousandth of a millimetre. So between 10 and 50 one thousandth of a millimetre. And these little particles float around in the water and they actually bump the grime off the airframe. They don't pull it off like a surfactant does. It gets bumped off. So it's very different technology. The bonus of this is that these tiny little particles actually fit into the surface imperfections on the aircraft and that stops corrosion. Okay, so it's actually, by bumping off, it's almost like it's a gentle sa- um, sandpapering or is it a... Oh, more gentle than that. Okay. It's, it's just flicking it off. Okay, yeah. gently yeah. each yeah. little particle. Yeah, is. like flicking it off with your finger. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously no damage to any paintwork, no damage to any surfaces. No, it's, it's a gentle removal of the... That's correct. And as, as I say, because of the nature of the product... It'll actually preserve paintwork and it will stop corrosion. So it leaves a small film, you might say, or is it...? No, even less than a film. What it does, it just fills in micro-voids in the surface. Wow. Yeah, so, so right down on the on the uh, very tiny... like in those... Yeah, we're talking on the molecular layer yeah, here. It yeah, is, it is molecular. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, was, I was loath to use the word in case it wasn't quite that detailed. <laughs> no, that, it is. It okay. is. It's gently buffering every, buffing everything off. And it's leaving behind a protection. So that's it acting on it. Is it, is it dispersed via a, a water cannon device, or is it a? Um, how do you how do you apply it? Well, you can even though it's not a detergent, you apply it as if it was. You treat it just the same. So you can put it on with a a mop or a, a, a hand mitt or a sponge. I I recommend the most efficient way for aircraft cleaning is to foam it on with a a foam-generating machine. That's the most efficient way to clean an aircraft, and that will give you the best result if you're looking at anti-corrosion or fighting corrosion. That's the best way to apply it. That's pretty fascinating. Okay, so it goes on as a foam, and then do you wash it off afterwards? And then you rinse it off, yeah. To get the most benefit of it, can anyone sort of go and just do it on, on their aircraft? Um, do you have to do it in a certain location so you can reclaim the water and process it that way? Or is it because it's environmentally friendly, you could do it over the grass, wash the aircraft and just let the water seep into the... A bit of a touchy one, that. Okay. Um, the product is 100% biodegradable. So if it were to fall on the ground, it would pose no environmental threat whatsoever. It would, in fact, break down very rapidly into its elemental constituents, so break down into nitrogen and carbon and, and whatever, very, very quickly. 
the big issue we have with washing aircraft these days with our environmental concerns is not so much the ZI-400, it's what the ZI-400 will drag off the airframe. That's why it's a bit of, can be a bit of a touchy issue. The, the ZI-400 is, is quite clean, but what came off the plane with it is, is you don't want some of those chemicals from engines, exhausts, etc. as well as the general, because I'm just thinking general grime that you pick up like bug bits and things like that. But yeah, of course, there's all the all the lubricants and the um, fuels and so on. So yeah, so you, you wouldn't do it in a wash base, wash bay area. Uh, a wash bay is certainly recommended. In I guess there there are circumstances where there's just simply not a wash bay available. But providing people take due care and diligence. Yeah, it tends not to be a problem, but that's your best to discuss that with the environmental people at the airport where you're working or, or where you house your aircraft so you don't fall foul of anybody. So yeah. it's just better to ask. Now that does lead very nicely onto where is this being found in Australia? It's, it's being manufactured under licence from the US. Yes. It's being distributed around Australia. Who's using it? Who, who's out there using the ZI-400? Lots of people are using it. The Australian Defence Force have used it since 1993. We have many big commercial operators that use it. Regional Express, Jetstar, lots of helicopter operators, Bristow, CHC helicopters. Of so it's good in a corrosion environment such as uh, working the oil rigs because of your exposure to salt, wash it off afterwards. doesn't just get rid of everything, it also gives it a bit of protection. That's so. correct. A, lo- a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the rescue helicopters around Australia use ZI-400 and, and also the ZOP-27 for their turbines. Westpac rescue helicopter. A lot of people are definitely... EMQ, yeah. Emergency Management Queensland. Okay. Yeah. So it's being... I've seen the photos of the Orion, so I'm assuming it's used to clean the P3. Uh, yes. Uh, the combat jets. The, yes. Pretty much everything in the fleet it's all checked out for. Pretty much, yep. Okay. Yep. Now, you, you're talking about the Bristos and the rescue helicopters in the GA area. I take it there'd be people using it with corporate jets. How about with light jet, light aircraft, such as the Cessnas and things like that? Yes, we, we have a lot of the mums and dads. They like using the product because it's, it doesn't rip their hands around. It's a friendly product to use and it looks after their aircraft. People, are, they've worked hard to buy a nice investment and obviously you want to keep it a nice investment and, yep. and not degrade it. So, yeah, we, we have lots of home home users, home builders, even light sport and ultralights. So it's covering the whole spectrum from um, RAGA, ultralights, as you said, all the way through to the uh, regionals, the domestics, internationals, and even the military. That's so correct. The that's whole fantastic. way through. That's really good because I'm, I'm, I'm picturing, okay, no, it's for specialised scenarios, but it, it sounds like it's it's the thing to use to clean your aircraft and, <clears throat> yes, maybe your car as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So you've made it under licence from a company in the USA. How did you select the product and the company? How did you find out about it? Again, that's a long story. EK scoured the world for a good quality product and intensive searching back in those days we didn't have internet like we have now. It was a a big task. We found the ZI400 and we established a a very good working relationship with the the company in America and after four years, as I say in 1993, we were then given the, the, the rights to manufacture it ourselves here in Australia and we've been doing so ever since. Well done. In the, in the early days it, it was certainly um, a fairly mammoth task. <laughs> I would imagine. These days everything you're hearing is, oh green is clean and good, and, uh, but 
way back in 93, it was a very new thing to have. So how did you go with going up against other products and so on by saying, like, were you able to push the green angle? Or was that the right thing to do? Or well, as you say, back then, green was the only thing green that anyone cared about was Kermit the Frog, you know, and nobody really had any interest in, in green. Why the product got so well established was the fact that it was proven to slow down or prevent corrosion, and that's what got people interested in the product, that it had this anti-corrosion capability. So the more you washed your plane, the less it would corrode. So everyone said, right, that's no where we're going to go. Yeah. It was a no-brainer. So the, the whole enviro-friendly thing was just an extra bonus tick for when people started worrying about it. That's correct. The OH&S and the environmentally friendly, yeah, that, that's an added bonus. Well, thank you very much for your time. Really oh, appreciate you. you coming on the show. And, yeah, good luck with all that. That sounds like some amazing products. It sounds like everyone should be getting out there and cleaning their aircraft with the ZI-400. Absolutely, for sure. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Plan your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. PCDU's Avalon 2013 series is brought to you by Avplan. Get more for your EFB. Avsoft.com.au. Classic Flight Bag. For those who identify the sky as their office, grab your bag and go. ClassicFlightBag.com. Sennheiser. Sennheiser S1 Digital, the quiet revolution in aviation headsets. World Flight Planner. Plan your flight like a pro and get worldwide coverage with World Flight Planner. WorldFlightPlanner.com. Eco 2000 Zoc 27 Gas Turbine Cleaner. Shaping the future of gas turbine washing. And Red Baron Adventures. RedBaron.com.au. Do you have the need? The need for speed? Jet Ride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, Jet Ride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jet Ride. Forget the rest. Fly with the best. ATC Ben and I, and I'm here with Gerhard Jordan, who is the uh, test pilot and uh, engineer on the GA10, the turbine-powered air van from Gibbs Aero and Mahindra Aerospace. Gerhard, welcome to PCDU. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, you're uh, one of the test pilots on this wonderful uh, aeroplane behind us here, the latest offering from Mahindra Aerospace. Yes. What can uh, you tell us about it? Actually, small correction. I am uh, one of the company development pilots. In Gibbs Aero, we use experimental test pilots for the initial envelope expansion, after which the airplane gets handed over to me as a development pilot, where I collect certification numbers, you know. Yes, I have a couple of hours in the airplane now. She's been flying for almost a year now, and she has been showing fantastic potential. We actually achieved the certification requirements 
for part 23 at latest amendment. Yes. Now this air aircraft is the um, what we would call Australia's answer to the caravan. Yes, uh, you know the other day we were taxiing out and we got this radio call. Listen, mate, you look like a cross between a porter and a caravan. You know, <laughs> very interesting radio call, but that made me think that's how people see us. Yes. So we are an entry-level turboprop in between the top-end pistons and the lower-end turboprops. So. Uh, Somewhere in between a 300 horsepower piston engine and a 600 horsepower Patna Whitney lies a 450 shaft horsepower Pulsar Waste engine. So once again, similarly as a GA8 before, we are hoping to achieve a niche market with the GA10. Now, what kind of weights and speeds are we looking at for this, this aircraft? What, what are they, uh, they're looking for in the, uh, the development uh, for maximum takeoff weight and a, and a sort of cruise airspeed indication? Okay, good question. Uh, to put things in perspective, everybody knows the GA8, which is a 4,200-pound airplane. The GA10 is 4,750. Okay, so we're offering 550 pounds more useful load. That can be shared between uh, load and fuel. We have 600 litres of fuel, 900 pounds worth. So after you fill the tanks, you're still going to have an honest 1,400 pounds payload. You should be able to move that payload at at least 140 knots, around 10,000 feet. And um, if you take those numbers, the GA-10 will be one of the most economical utility airplanes on the market today. Like I said, 140 knots, not fast, but you're not burning much fuel. At that kind of speed, you're probably looking at burning about 95 litres an hour. This aircraft also comes with being turbine powered, has the, the reliability of the turbine engine, and uh, I would imagine quite impressive performance. Very impressive, you know, uh, the flight test results have been very promising, even all the way up to 4,750 pounds. Uh, we have taken the airplane up to 20,000 feet, and even at that altitude, we still had a miserable climb rate. See, uh, showing very promising performance. It sounds like ex excellent performance. Makes going to make it a uh, absolute must-do for the short strips and uh, the kind of operations that this aircraft is is geared towards. Now we're moving into the uh, the certification program. And, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the path moving forward to getting this aircraft to the market. Yes, very interestingly, we have spent about a year on development flight testing, which included uh, the propeller survey flights with hard cell and the engine survey flights with Rolls Royce. Before we could actually put that label on the cowling, we had to prove to Rolls Royce that the installation is, uh, is working perfectly. We have now reached that milestone. We have our test pilot Tony Morris have signed out the handling qualities and, perf and performance for us which means that we are now very fast reaching the point where we can start collecting numbers for certification. And as I said before, that is where the company pilots come in, where we collect uh, the performance numbers and also some of the handling qualities uh, results. Now that kind of program has got three phases. You're looking at the handling quality and performance phase over the next couple of months. And towards the second half of the year, there will be uh, an intensive phase where we will put the airplane through some flutter clearance trials up to dive speed and followed by a spin trial where we will have to prove that the airplane is conforming to the requirements of the latest FAR amendment. And now what, what's it like to fly as a, as a pilot? 
you in an the seat? An absolute pleasure. Everybody knows the benign flying qualities of a GA18. The GA18 has inherited that legacy. It's, it's a really fine handling airplane. It's not so much a design, but it's actually the requirements of FAR 23, that latest amendment. You know, if you can get an airplane to conform to those rules, you will be extremely benign. The post stall handling is, is really benign. So the GA-10 is a GA-8 with a turbine engine. So any pilot upgrading from a GA-8 will only have to learn about handling the engine. Okay, thank you very much for your time today. You are most welcome. Okay. Once again, we're uh, having a chat with a couple of gentlemen from the uh, Super Hornet, Flight Lieutenant uh, Robert Kuslin. You're uh, up the front uh, in the pointy end of the jet. Yes, I am. Welcome to Plane Crazy. And Paolo Neri, you're the uh, Wizzo in the back. That's correct, yeah. You gentlemen are one of the uh, four aircraft involved in the formation display. Yep. There was a four-ship uh, formation display in Classic Hornets uh, some time ago. Is, is this a uh, direct descendant of that display, or is this all new? Yeah, it is basically the, uh, the same ship with a few modifications uh, here and there. Can you walk us through what that show involves? What do you do? Is it's 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 not quite roulettes formation aerobatics, but it's uh, pretty noisy and uh, pretty tight together. Yeah, lots of noises, lots of close formation. The first part of the show is uh, four hornets flying close formation, primarily in a, a diamond uh, formation. So two either side of the lead aircraft and they are full aircraft in what we call the slot um, or a box formation and basically from there on it's a, a, a numerous figure of eights around the field, um, slow and fast uh, passes, uh, top side, underside passes, configured passes with the, uh, the gear and the flaps out, uh, lots of noises, uh, high speed passes and that combinates in the uh, bomb burst. From there on we'll go away and uh, maybe five or ten minutes later we'll come back and we'll do uh, what's called an ACM um, demo which is advanced combat maneuvering which is basically a two versus one scenario where uh, a bad guy comes in from behind and uh, you'll get to see the initial uh, moves uh, with the uh, defensive break turn and we go to shoot the bad guy we break away uh, lots of scary high-speed passes and then uh, later on and there's some uh, airfield attacks so we simulate flying in and uh, dropping bombs and shooting the airfield with yeah. pyrotechnics in the field. It's, it's pretty good because you've got people coming, you've got the two ships coming in from one side and yep. just yeah, recovering right, yeah. and thinking, oh my god, we're over that, boom, they come in from the other side. Yeah. Yep. So which uh, position do you guys normally fly? Which ship? Uh, so we, we can fly a number of positions, so for, for the uh, display coming up, so the first one on Friday will be in the number two position, so that'll be on uh, as the, the jets come from right to left, that's the, the jet that's uh, closest to the ground there. But uh, all the wizards and pilots uh, can change around in different slots in the formation with a dedicated crew of uh, pilots. And uh, the wizards in the back can swap around from two, three and four jet uh, as the weekend progresses. How much training did you have to go through to get all this all ready for this? Was it just basically, here's the formation that's going to happen, um, we've all done this before in the Hornet, now we're just upgrading? Or? Yeah, well fundamentally it's, it's uh, core skills for formation flying, so you get taught, you're taught how to fly formation uh, from the very beginning of uh, flying training on different aircraft types, so it's effectively the same skill. Uh, what's different about this one is obviously you need to be handpicked to, to fly and you can't just substitute anyone in because they have to be uh, intimate with the, uh, or familiar with the um, procedures out there slightly different you know the display flying you tend to get a little bit lower to the ground it's unusual to fly a lot of close formation uh, and especially a lot of close formation low to the ground so ultimately the lead aircraft he's not flying formation but he's responsible for maintaining very smooth roll rates because he's got three guys hanging on so obviously you can't maneuver the aircraft as aggressively as it is uh, you know by itself so yeah, he has a very, very busy time making sure the wind doesn't affect him and, uh, and we're hanging in there appropriately. Because if he moves quickly, um, we, have, we have a lot of trouble keeping up with him and we can look uh, you know, untidy if that's the case. So. 
Well, speaking of wind, and of course weather has been a central factor at this Avalon so far, and it's quite windy here today as we record this. What sort of challenges does that present to you when you're in the formation? And I guess particularly thinking, uh, when you're, particularly when you're doing a dirty pass, I guess that would be quite a quite a challenge. Yeah, well, I think there's a bit of a misnomer about uh, the wind and how it affects us flying formation. And the best way you can look at it is it's, it's you're all essentially in the same pocket of air. So if the lead aircraft hits a bump, you effectively hit it at the same time, you know, plus or minus. So there is turbulence is, is probably the best way to describe a difficult day of flying. So you want to find yourself struggling to stay in position a little bit more than a calm day. But for the guy observing on the ground, it is very, very blustery and windy. windy. It's not too much difficult in the sky other than the actual ground track of the, of the formation will change slightly. So that's up to the lead to make sure he increases G or eases at the appropriate times. Keeps you inside the box yeah. and away from crowd lines and exactly all that kind right. of yeah. stuff. That's right, yeah. 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 Paolo, uh, we were speaking to the guys from the solo show, um, and the Wizzo is uh, in the back. We were making the comment that uh, usually you see um, an aircraft doing the display, and uh, it's a solo operation. That's right. Now you guys are, are doing you're, you fly the jets normally with two. You you work together as a as a, almost like a, a multi crew. The crew. Yeah. yeah. So um, the previous gentleman was saying that. Uh, when you're out there flying, you're calling gate speeds, things like that. Are you doing something similar in there, or is yeah. it? Yeah, that's correct. So when we're in the four-ship, um, the, the Wizzo's primarily are backing up the pilot, pilot on all the parameters for the, the display, um, looking at air speeds, looking at altitudes, um, proximity to the ground, uh, sort of a general lookout as well for, for birds and, and that around the airfield that could be a potential factor uh, for the aircraft. Uh, and then, and that varies in the position that you're in. So, so for the number two and three, you're in the formation who are on the outside, uh, of, the, of the diamond as you see it. They're basically uh, backing up the pilot on airspeed and the like, and, and the pilots will be taking all their cues off, off the lead aircraft at the front. For number four in the back there, it's, it's quite a loud, uh, it's quite a loud position for us. We, we do see that a little, we do see it slightly higher uh, in the back seat there, so when, when uh, number four is in behind number one, uh, you're hearing yeah, you got all this exhaust from his engines uh, coming over the top of the canopy, so it's quite loud in that one there, so you know, backing up the pilot even further on that, in that position there. Looked like you were quite tight in the slot. It is, yeah. It looks as tight as it looks from the ground in the air, yeah. Now, you, you were talking about the ACM demos and the high-low and coming through and, and keeping everything going. How did you come up with what was best for that? What, what influenced the uh, manoeuvres that you were going to go into? Basically, we were showcasing a bit about how we how we fight the, the aircraft. So, so for the ACM set that we're conducting over the airfield, we'll come in and do... Uh, what we call a, a sort of a vertical entry. So the lead aircraft will go into the vertical as his, uh, and then number two is his wingman effectively, and he comes in and he uh, flies over the airfield when number three pretends to be the uh, hostile aircraft, the enemy there trying to, trying to chase down number two. And uh, as, as the lead aircraft goes over the top, he's, uh, he's trying to get a missile shot on the hostile to get him off the tail of number two. So that's what we're showcasing uh, to the crowd sort of a typical uh, ACM set that we can expect, you know, with how we fight. And then, uh, of course, number four comes flying in uh, after that. Uh, for the, the airfoot attack, it's, it's basically the parameters that we're conducting for the airfoot attack are pretty similar to the way we conduct a, an airfoot attack, especially with the gun. And uh, it's, it's a straight pass, effectively, uh, coming in on a 15-degree angle and then uh, gunning the ground and then pulling up and recovering. So that pull-up you see after we come in and strafe is uh, a realistic representation of the way we pull up and recover from the ground. And that's to prevent any sort of frag from the, from the, from the bullets that are going into the ground and bouncing up and hitting at us. So yeah, it's quite a good uh, recovery for the display. Yeah. So, no, it's uh, it's definitely an impressive display in terms of aircraft. With uh, you know, just one aircraft coming in is noisy. Two is pretty noisy. The four of you, it's just it's fantastic. Uh, really sets up a rumble. 
It's great. That's yeah. That's what it's designed for, yeah. <laughs> Robert, you're an instructor at Six Squadron, correct? Yes. Now, uh, you've got a, you're telling us before we started, you've got uh, quite an in interesting history. You've been over in the US uh, doing some work over there with the Navy. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so after flying about three years on the, uh, the Classic uh, Hornet in uh, Australian Williamtown, uh, I was fortunate to be given the opportunity to go to the United States and uh, work directly uh, in a US Navy uh, squadron. Uh, it was VFA-122, so a uh, training squadron that uh, teach uh, young Navy pilots how to fly the, uh, the Hornet and the Super Hornet. So I was fortunate enough to be out there for two years and uh, instructed. Uh, and then uh, luckily at the end of that time, part of the good deal is uh, thanks for training our, our guys uh, and they take you out to the aircraft carrier. Uh, so I was fortunate to get out there and take off and land on a boat and see what the, the aircraft was actually, you know, actually designed for originally. Okay, now all of our audience is gonna wanna know what it's, what's it like doing the shot off the carrier? What Can you take us through some of the well, I'd be lying to you if I said it was uh, no big deal. <laughs> um, like I always wanted to, uh, you know, there's always a bit of rivalry between us that do and don't uh, take off on boats, as you know when you go hang out with the Navy guys. Um, so I was really scared. Uh, there's no doubt about it. You do a lot of training for it, but it's, you know, there's only so much you can simulate a boat by landing at a field. So the Navy try and turn the runway lights off and they have a little uh, square that's lit up and that's supposed to represent a boat. Ultimately, when you get out there in this uh, enormous boat that you know, you're already a little bit overwhelmed by being in an aircraft carrier um, as your day-to-day -day life goes on, and then to actually walk out and jump into a jet and uh, you know, feel the breeze over the deck and then finally get put into the, the, the cab for a takeoff. I mean, your nerves and your butterflies are like crazy because you've never been there. And then uh, the first time I, I got given the, at least a bit of information that I had to hold onto the rails and keep my head back and stop hitting my uh, head as it got launched off. But, uh, it was actually like getting shot out of a, you know, a shotgun, and uh, it was like being winded. I, I could not breathe the whole duration. Not that it's a whole long duration. It's very, very quick to get off. But uh, um, the boat's essentially very, very big when you're on it. And as soon as you get launched, and you look over your shoulder, and you go, "Oh no, I have to <laughs> land on that thing." Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, and then the landing once again very, very scary because I mean the boat is essentially very, very tiny, and it's moving, and it's kind of got a whole bunch of geometry problems with the slanted runway. You know, the uh, so it's very, very scary and uh, things can turn ugly very, very quickly. So. Did you do any night landings on there? I, I think it would be terrifying enough to try and land on a boat and I'm a Cessna pilot, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, the US Navy, they're actually the only, only Navy in the world to ever land at night. Um, not many other navies do that. So that's one thing that they hold, uh, you know, they, they're very proud of that. So that was the plan for me. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, uh, being an instructor, I was low priority. So the, we had a lot of students out there, and, and they got the number one priority. So I was on course to go tonight. Unfortunately, I just didn't have enough slots in the daytime to uh, to go qualify for night. So as a reward, they're like, "Look, we felt sorry for you because we didn't actually get you to the night." Um, although everyone was saying, "Don't go night. You're crazy if you do." Um, so they gave me a, a night catch shot. So uh, I, got, wow. I got shot off the boat at night, which is, is kind of scary enough as it is anyway. So you were in, you were in the front flying, and they shot you off, and you head back to well, land. I was in the back just hanging on and I had all the all the gear of uh, going home so I got thrown back to the mainland but I was you know I was watching all the students on the call the fear cam which is a uh, an infrared camera and you sit directly underneath where all the aircraft land on the boat and uh, that is terrifying watching all these uh, students come in and crash land and uh, no, yeah, not a pleasant experience to sit there and watch watch it all. Well, it's <laughs> really much a controlled crash, isn't it? Yeah. There yeah. is, there is the joke that written on the back of the carrier is, if you can read this, pull up. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's probably there somewhere. <laughs> I don't think I saw it in my times, thankfully. <laughs> Gentlemen, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Thank you very much for your time, and we really appreciate uh, all the effort you're going into for the, uh, for the show. 
Um, it's fantastic. I do have to admit that the um, the F22 is a little louder than the four of you when you're going past in formation, but that's the right thing. That. Yeah. yeah, that's always a wonderful thing. We're always happy to hear that. Well, we need some feedback, so yeah. We yeah. Need yeah. Challenge accepted is what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> when I used to work ground operations here, uh, the rule for winning the prize as the best display was uh, louder, lower, faster. So, you know, they'd just put yeah. that out there, I agree. Well, you know, I, I've got to keep that, my old AGO friends happy. <laughs> Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thank, thank you. you. We're here in front of the wedge tail and we've got Flight Lieutenant Dave Lees and Flight Lieutenant Reese Brown. Gentlemen, welcome aboard. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Now, Reese, uh, you're a pilot here on the wedge tail. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, the wedge tail, as from a pilot's perspective, is uh, pretty much the same as flying a 737, although a little draggier. So uh, I guess for us, that actually makes it easier to fly because it means that uh, when you're descending, Unlike the normal 737, which can easily get away from you, uh, we've got a bit more drag to help us uh, come down and descend and land. Uh, I guess the only other thing that we do that's uh, unique is uh, air-to-air refueling, uh, which we've been doing a bit of lately. What's that like doing air-to-air refueling in a 737? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty daunting at first when you're coming that close to an aircraft when you're meant to be avoiding getting close to any aircraft and you actually pretty much make contact, so... Uh, and you're seeing a whole bunch of grey in your in the cockpit, and it's from uh, the other aircraft. Uh, as far as actually flying it, we uh, disconnected about 200 feet and uh, hand flight all the way in. Uh, because the engines are like hung under the wing so low and they're so powerful, uh, it gives a like a pretty heavy uh, pitch coupling. So uh, it fit, like any any power changes that you make, uh, like you're fighting with the uh, the yoke to um, like hold it in the position. Uh, and I guess because you're so high, the inertia um, and the time that it takes up to spool the engine means that you have to uh, sort of be a bit predictive when you're flying it. But you sort of get yourself settled in and uh, after about 20 minutes or so, you're ready to finish up because you're pretty fatigued. Yeah, because I imagine the, uh, you, are you using the trim wheel what much or is it all just straight yoke control? You have to use the, the trim because as the uh, aircraft takes on more fuel, the centre of gravity changes. So you're trimming all the way through just to hold it into position. So um, you're, you're trimming out all the forces as best you can, but it's still, um, there's still a lot of uh, hand flying. Your thumb gets pretty sore, a bit of RSI in there from going back and forth all the time. Yeah, and also in your left hand with the throttles because uh, you've obviously got two engines in there. Uh, they're slightly, uh, like when you're sitting there, your hand's cocked off, so that probably hurts more than your thumb. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, I could see that after 20 minutes. It would, I've been in a 7.3 sim, and, uh, yeah, I could imagine trying to do that for that long would be pretty intense. Yeah, definitely, and it's it's still extremely fun, though. So. <laughs> now you'd be taking off the boom, obviously. Ah, oh, that's right. So we're taking off the boom, and uh, the aircraft that, that we've been taking off is the KC-135, so we use the, the boom on that. So uh, with that procedure, now, obviously, I was up in the uh, the KC-30 yesterday and watching them coming to the probe and drogue. With you guys, is it, is it a matter of bringing the aircraft to a position and then letting the, the boomer bring the probe you know, down to your aircraft? Yeah, that's right. So the first position we go to is called uh, pre-contact, and uh, that's a stable position about 50 feet away from uh, the other aircraft where we can uh, finalise the checks and get the system ready to receive fuel. And then uh, we'll slowly move up into contact position, uh, which is uh, we we fly off uh, lighting cues from uh, the bottom of the KC-30 when we fly with them and... uh, um, and also visual cues from the uh, from the engines, the, the position in your own windscreen, 
and uh, we sit uh, in a sort of 16 foot box and then the uh, the boom operator will steer the uh, the probe into. Now uh, you didn't always uh, fly, come straight in and fly twin heavies like this. Uh, I believe you started in something a little more uh, compact, intimate, and personal. Yeah, so um, like all pilots, we went through CT4s and uh, PC9s, and uh, I had the uh, like the the pleasure of being able to fly the Hawk for a while. So yeah, quite different. <laughs> So going from a very small uh, see-everything-everywhere kind of cockpit and uh, now you're in a multi-crew environment with uh, cockpit resource management and uh, a bit of inertia, and as we've just discussed. So what kind, what kind of training difference, how much uh, training did you go through to go between one to the other? It's, uh, it's funny that you say it's um, the mentality of flying in that environment compared to a single seat is completely different. So I guess the, it was the, the CRM and the... Um, the checklist, the to and froing um, of speech, and like trying not to take over the what the other pilots doing. Uh, that that took a little while to get used to, but um, it it was pretty much the same conversion that I would have had if I went uh, straight from pilot's course onto the uh, the wedge tail. Now we've uh, spoken up the front pointy end and uh, getting from place to place and slurping some fuel and so on. But meanwhile, while you're doing all that and having fun, there's a, a bunch of console jockeys down the back who are um, probably playing Pac-Man and Gallagher and things like that. Yeah, PS3. Yeah, it would definitely be a PS3. Well, Dash, uh, can you tell us about your role, please? Absolutely. As you said, it's a bit like Pac-Man, but with consequences. So uh, we have 10 consoles down the back of the aeroplane where we uh, we track maritime uh, land and surface assets simultaneously. We then fuse together an identified uh, air picture and we digitally uh, send that off the aircraft. So the uh, the commanders can can receive the full picture in real time what's going on. So uh, how do you divide the load uh, between your various guys? Is it like altitude and sector and so on? Uh, it's, it's actually just an internal thing that we deal with. So we have a systems officer and his primary, or his or her primary role is to make sure that all the uh, additional equipment that's not a green 737 is uh, up and running uh, appropriately and optimised as required. Then we have myself, who's the uh, mission commander. If you think of it, it's a bit like the, uh, the tactical orchestra guy down the back, making sure that everyone's uh, doing what they need to do to achieve the, the sortie or the mission that we're out there to do. We then have the, uh, the senior SCO. So he's our senior surveillance control officer and he has a team of SCOs, which are surveillance control officers is working for him uh, and they're the guys that are basically talking off the aeroplane controlling uh, things like the supers and the classic hornets onto targets as required and we have one uh, ESMO as well so an electronic support guy. Okay, so uh, you've got this team back there and you've got a whole lot of consoles and my understanding is it's uh, all computer screens, all software driven so if anything happens you can move to another another screen and fire it up. That's right. So we don't normally fly with the 10 consoles full unless we're doing some uh, in-house training uh, which does happen quite regularly but we do have the redundancy there that if we're in the middle of uh, an intercept for example or uh, passing coordinates to somebody and that particular console goes down just like your home PC uh, we can just hop up, turn around and, and jump on another one and carry on. Now, you've got the roles there. I imagine everyone's specifically trained in their role. They're not so much cross-role. They don't jump between roles. Oh, no, that's uh, not quite correct. So everyone everyone joins uh, and goes through what we call the SCO conversion course. So they become a surveillance control officer, and then with time on the aircraft, you'll uh, go through an upgrade process, uh, either become a systems officer, a senior uh, surveillance control officer, and then switch at some point in time before you become an MC. So we retain currency across all of the roles. So at any given time, I can fly as an MC, an SO, a SCO, or a 
seen this go. Now, uh, back in 2011, we were talking to the Wedgetail crew. There was still very much development work going on with the aircraft and training. We now know that the aircraft's the chief IOC. What does that mean to you guys uh, as an air crew? Uh, so IOC to us is uh, basically permission to uh, deploy to a low-threat environment. Uh, and basically what that means to us is all of the testing and all of the, uh, the hard work that's been done previously, uh, we've arrived at a certain point where we can now be used operationally. And obviously working towards uh, getting everything certified, um, I guess that's still very much in the development phase. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's technology in general, right? So you turn around once and someone's invented something new and uh, we say, that's, that looks good, let's try, let's try that. So we're evolving with that. We're always bolting different bits and bits of kit onto the aeroplane and that's got to go through a certification process, obviously, before we can take it out the door and, uh, and clear it live with it. And that takes time. I would imagine that uh, given the, uh, the, the bus kind of architecture you've got in there and the software-driven environment, it makes it a little bit easier to uh, put enhancements in and, and uh, put upgrades in the, without having to do a lot of plumbing changes. That's right. But it's still subject to certification processes but yes it is uh it is easier (laughs) than it used to be yeah and of course it's software so um yeah we all know what that's like yeah write a different line of code and crack on (laughs) yeah yeah now um you've just attained ioc you've gone out and you've uh, been involved in a massive exercise out at guam and i understand for a new uh a new platform that's uh cutting edge very new first in the world doing it this kind of thing i understand you hit a few major goals Oh, we did. We actually the aircraft actually performed very, very well. So it was uh, scheduled for ten uh, mission sorties, and we hit ten out of ten. So, you know, for a, a brand new C two platform, the new kids on the block, uh, everyone was most impressed. And, and uh, yeah, we certainly controlled the uh, you know what out of it. It was great, great fun. <laughs> very nice. Of course, we all know that's uh, entirely possible because you guys up the front were keeping it flying properly. Doing a good job of it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, it wasn't the guys down the back at all. No. <laughs> yeah, we're a team. As, 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 long, as long as takeoffs equal landing. That Reesey boy's happy. <laughs> and as long as you stay up long enough to do what you got to do, you're happy. That's right, exactly. That's right. Uh, can you tell us what it was like at uh, Cope North? Uh, can you give us any kind of indication on uh, what kind of those 10 missions involved? Sure. So uh, we did a mixture of uh, OCA or uh, DCA type stuff, so offensive or... Uh defensive counter air roles. Uh, we played with the JASDAF, so the Japanese Air Self-Defence Force, and also the USAF assets that were over there. Uh, it was good, really good to integrate with uh, the USAF's E3, for example, uh, their F-15 platforms, and the uh, JASDAF F-2s, uh, E-2s, and uh, their 767 air, air refuelling variant as well. Now, uh, speaking of that international connectivity and so on, you mentioned quite a few partner groups in there. I understand that uh, the uh, two squadrons got uh, a few people scattered around the world and we've got a few people from around the world uh, working with you guys. Yeah, that's right. We have um, currently on strength at the squadron, we have uh, one United States Navy E2 uh, mission guy. Uh, it's basically a, uh, an exchange program. So we have one guy flying uh, there with them out of Norfolk in Virginia, I believe, and then uh, we have one guy over here. We also have some uh, lateral recruits that the, the RAF has uh, signed on the previous uh, RAF E3 knowledge, knowledgeable guys. So, uh, yeah, definitely multicultural in the squadron. It's a good way to be. You get the, uh, everyone comes in with their own different approach and helps you make it better. Yeah, that's right. You know, everyone has input, and at the end of the day, we uh, we put out the, the world-class product. Okay. Now, um, have either of you guys done any uh, international rotations yourselves? Uh, I haven't. We've uh, got one pilot at the moment that's uh, on an E3 exchange with uh, the RAF. So he's been there for a few months now, and hopefully he'll come back to the squadron and bring all the 
lessons that they have uh, that they're learning and uh, will incorporate it to our uh, role. And Dash, how about you? Yeah, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to do a three year exchange with the USAF on the E three AWACS. So that was uh, back in 06 to 08, basically. Yeah, so I came back in now uh, 2009 and converted onto this airframe. And uh, how do you find the differences between the, the way the Americans were doing it in the uh, E3 and the technology, which was back in the 60s and 70s and so on? I mean, of course, it's been upgraded inside, but how do you find their methods of operation versus what we're doing here and uh, the difference in the equipment? Yeah, it's very similar. Obviously, like you said, it's a 1960s, 1970s technology that they're flying with uh, pre-upgrade and uh, the HMI is totally different. We're more of a Windows-based drop-down box with a, a mouse kind of deal, whereas they're more um, push-button type in a line of code and uh, and go from there. Uh, obviously, the technology we've got on this aircraft with the, the MISA radar versus the APY radars that they're running over there is, is totally different. Uh, a little bit of the ESM side of the house is different as well, so, but, but at the end of the day, they're both uh, world-class C2 platforms and they, they do identical jobs there's just advantages and disadvantages with both that's an interesting point is this aircraft able to operate with those aircraft in tandem can you exchange information efficiently between aircraft that way absolutely yeah so we have the digital data links as well that we can use uh, and that's that's pretty much how we pass uh, pass the ball so to speak okay brownie dash thank you so much for coming on the show thank you very much Well, there we go. Another uh, very, very busy day. And, uh, you know, our listeners might notice that uh, by comparison, Grant, to the uh, last Avalon series that we did, we're not calling these ones quick cast. That's (laughs) that's for a reason. (laughs) There's nothing quick about this one. There's nothing quick about the work made to build them. And there's nothing quick about sitting back and listening to them. They're all at least 45 minutes long. Well, that's the goal. And the last couple have been about... Ooh, an hour. Okay, ATC Ben. Now we've been uh, we've been talking about this for a while. You were out there with our friends at Gibbs Arrow today. When have you organised your test flight for? Well, we're going to have to see about that one. Uh, the uh, <laughs> aircraft still got experimental stickers all over the side of it, so I don't think they're going to let me fly it just yet. Oh, but, come uh, on, you big wuss! I'll, I'll I'll do you a deal, Steve. You can fly the GA eight. And uh, I'll take the 10 for a spin when that's when it's ready to go. You're on, mate. I'd be quite happy to have a, a GA8 in my fleet, which would make it a fleet of one. <laughs> Actually, Baz, you wouldn't mind a GA8 in your fleet. You could add it to you park it right there next to the Sporty. Uh, yeah, not quite ready for that yet. Uh, but I'm going to go for a bit of a fly in the morning because, uh, uh, as you know, I flew into Avalon, Maine because Avalon East was still closed. And I asked today, uh, what time can I get out on Saturday to, to get back home to the family? And... They said, uh, you can't. <laughs> what, what you can do, I can, give, I can give you a slot tomorrow morning where you can uh, just fly over a kilometer or two to Avalon East, park it there, and uh, you'll be able to get out. So uh, I think I'm going to take Ben for a quick buzz tomorrow morning. Should be uh, quite good. Now, uh, you may have noticed that we didn't have a Timbo's Tarmac or in the keyhole with uh, Papa Smurf today. And uh, Grant, why was that? Basically, uh, the Tarmac boys were really, really busy towards the end of the day. Uh, we were quite busy with our interviews and running around, uh, meeting a few people and so on. So uh, for us, it was just easier to... Uh, I, I very quickly had a, ch- a chat not recorded with Papa Smurf. And I, I caught up with Timbo by phone. <laughs> we cheated. And... Uh, basically the information they gave us uh, from Timbo, his tarmac has uh, increased its uh, population. Doug Hamilton, whom we ran into in the uh, trade halls area, Dougie flew in with his Lockheed 12 and uh, they've also got the uh, de Havilland 3 Drover, that's uh, that's arrived and uh, Trappo's come in with his P-51, that's uh, squadron leader Trappet, come in with his gleaming uh, metal P-51 um, and also the rumour going around on the um, AGO grapevine is that uh, the second F-22 that uh, had actually gone uh, unserviceable 
prior to the start of the show has had its parts come in from Japan. It's all been fixed. Everything's working fine. And um, the other bit was, uh, as per the media report that came out, uh, the Breitling crew, they did have an engine failure during one of their displays. Um, the other aircraft kept going, but the aircraft with the failure landed and off field. That engine uh, failure, they're, they're working on it, but they don't think it's going to be ready for the rest of the show. So they're, they're doing the show with one aircraft. Uh, but everyone was fine with that. Uh, no injuries, a uh, bit of um, embarrassment, but uh, no one was hurt. And uh, so that's going around. Uh, no one at AGO seemed to be too under the weather. I think that must have been something to do with turning up around four or five in the afternoon. That always helps. And uh, yeah, Papa Smurf said that uh, they had the uh, second KC-30 come in. And uh, apparently it looks like there's another um, C-17, both RAF aircraft. So I would say that there's probably going to be uh, C-17 and uh, KC-30 doing some flights, perhaps, uh, while two stay on static in the keyhole. That's my theory. Uh, we've also had Haas come in with the Connie, the Constellations come in, and also they've got a couple of Caribous there now. Um, there's one in the keyhole and there's one further around parked static. And um, Papa Smurf was otherwise kept busy here and the guys in the keyhole area um, and up in that intersection in the loop were kept very busy dealing with uh, a whole lot of light aircraft that were coming in and uh, parking not far from where uh, Mr. Baz has his sporty. Great, that, that off-field landing is not quite so off-field because if you recall, a few years yes. ago. That's where Avalon West had Correct. runway. It was pretty much in the same fields as Avalon West. That was where we had uh, had a few lighties coming in and out to uh, off. They were involved in the show in terms of static display. They were also doing, I believe, the uh, Round Victoria race. And uh, so they were using um, Avalon West at one point. And yeah, that's also, I've seen a caribou go in there and do a helicopter landing in the winds. Uh, such a strong wind over the nose, he was practically coming down vertically. And it was also um, not too far from where uh, many years ago the guys from New York had their uh, World War One replicas and were flying them. So yeah, not that off field, but off field enough that the fire trucks couldn't get to them without bogging and they had to get a uh, truck with some earth moving equipment down to uh, create a new road so they could actually get to them. Well, interesting stuff, mate. i tell you what, I think we might wrap it up there. We've got another busy day ahead of us tomorrow, day four of Avalon, which, of course, is the first of the public days. The doors open to the public after lunchtime, I think, tomorrow. So I guess the corporate uh, people will be uh, switching over and uh, changing modes and, uh, you know, going from uh, trying to sell lots of their wares to potential customers to uh, going into show-off mode and showing it to the general public. Yeah, they also start putting up the uh, crowd control barriers in various places. And, in fact, in a lot of the trade hall areas, they start putting up uh, barriers to try and keep people from swarming their uh, stands. The, the whole feel of the area changes quite dramatically. That was day three at Avalon 2013. We'll see you tomorrow. See you, folks. You have been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under's Avalon 2013 series. Look for our video coverage on our YouTube channel, YouTube slash Plane Crazy Down Under, and follow all the Avalon action on Twitter at the hashtag Avalon13. Contact us anytime with feedback, suggestions, or advertising inquiries at planecrazydownunder at gmail.com. Playing Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media podcast. Oh, you're welcome. And it's not really good down the back when he's doing it air. <laughs> <laughs> At least he makes us coffee, though, when we're doing it. So there's a show title. <laughs> I think we have a blooper reel. <laughs> so, uh, so, so what it actually turns out is that while you're busy flying up there, the, uh, Dash & Co, they run the uh, hottest, most expensive coffee machine in the world. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and Reese is a bee cat at making toasties as well, so it's all good. Okay.
Okay, we got some time. Yeah. Okay. So, Flight Lieutenant uh, Robert Kuzland, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>